searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch Please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. What's up, everybody? It's Mike. We're back here on the Pitch Please podcast. And today we've got Joel from Doormat. They're an online real estate lawyer making it simple for Canadians to complete their real estate transactions in a tech-first way. I'm excited to learn more. It sounds like they're really disrupting things. But before we dive into too much, let's get a little bit of an introduction about yourself, Joel. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Really happy to be here. And for me, I am the CEO, or excuse me, COO and co-founder of Doormat have been with the company for about a year and a half now, pretty much since I I jumped on and we launched in March of this year. In terms of my background, I have an undergrad and grad degree in business at McMaster. Out of that, I went and worked in at RBC in a rotational program, ultimately left RBC to run my own business in the CPG space. And then it was from that business that I ended up leaving to join Doormat. So that's kind of my my fast uh, run through of, of my background and my experience. That's awesome. Well, I want to learn a little bit more. I know the background here is we went to school together. <laughs> so I know a little bit of the timelines involved here. And I'm, I'm curious to like discuss some of that with you too. But I think from your time at RBC, uh, you know, a lot of the, the jobs you were doing there, tell me a little bit about those roles and that first jump that you made into your first startup. And then we'll, we'll talk about doormat after, but I think like, what were the timelines of that? Was your first startup related to something you were doing at RBC or completely different? Like what, you know, you went right from school to RBC. Tell us about the roles there and, and what that for, that first jump off sort of was For about. sure. And I actually skipped a, a, a small blip on the radar. After, after undergrad, I went and worked for a mutual fund company. I was pretty dead set. I'm going into the finance space and, and going up through the sales org of uh, a mutual fund company, but quickly realized once I was there that that wasn't what was for me. And that's what prompted me to go back to to grad school and back to McMaster to do the co-op MBA program. And then out of that, I went into the leadership rotational program at RBC. So that allowed me to rotate through different areas of mostly the head office of the personal and commercial banking unit of the company. And I did a little bit of a stint in sales as well. But through that opportunity and through that program, I ended up getting exposure to our technology group and in particular, our innovation group. So I spent about two years at RBC before getting pulled into that world. And once I graduated out of the leadership program, I actually went to the technology and operations space within RBC and worked in the innovation space there. And that was really what was like my first exposure to the tech scene within Canada and Toronto in particular, um, and and more of like the entrepreneurial spirit that we had in the city. Um, and so I think that's when I like started to catch the bug. And, uh, you know, I always in my mind, I thought I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to stay at RBC forever. That wasn't exactly what I saw myself doing uh, for the rest of my career. And, and so I think through my time on the innovation team at RBC, I got exposure to all the all these great companies, all these great entrepreneurs, and it just started to become more and more interesting for me to step in into that scene. And so I worked almost four years, I think, in in that space at RBC. And towards the end of my time there, I started up an online marketplace for healthy food and supplements with uh, a few friends, and we were running that on the side of all of our day jobs, and it started to go quite well particularly once the pandemic hit, online grocers uh, and delivery services became a pretty hot business. So I was put into a position where I needed to either leave, leave RBC or, or leave that, that side hustle and I couldn't do both at the same time. So that was when I took the opportunity to, to leap full time into that business and you know take away the safety net that I had with RBC. Yeah, talk to us about that. I think that's like, you made it sound like it's, you know, a very quick decision, but I'm sure it was not, nor was it an easy one after you sort of went to the workforce, went back to school, came back, 
were making good money and had some impactful roles at RBC. Talk to us about like that discussion with yourself and your co-founders to make that jump. What were some of the easiest parts in your mind and some of the most challenging things or elements that you were weighing out when, when you were deciding if this is what you were going to go do? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the first conversation that I needed to have before even my co-founders was with my wife and deciding how we could handle it financially, lifestyle-wise. We had, of course, gotten used to a certain a certain lifestyle and, and taking a step into entrepreneurship full-time was obviously going to impact that. So you're right. We It wasn't, you know, a snap decision that was made. It was probably like a close to a year of conversations with my wife and thinking about it and also saving up that whole time. So we planned for worst case scenario financially. So I was fortunate to, to have my wife working full time as well, but I also saved a significant amount over my time in like that last year, year and a half at RBC, which ended up being, you know, the best thing that I did because you, you know, jumping into the world of entrepreneurship, I think you always think you're going to get pat or you're going to get paid faster than you do. And, you know, that certainly wasn't the case for me. So having that cushion was huge and it was what allowed me to, you know, get a really great experience in building that business, running that business without having to to jump ship too early for my own personal financial reasons. So, so yeah, you're, you're completely right that it wasn't just kind of some snap decision. I think it was well planned out. And then to your question about how I, I planned it with my co-founders at the time in, in that business, it made most sense. I was the only one that jumped full-time on it at that point. So it made most sense for me for a number of reasons to be the one to do that. And we had all agreed upon that across the four of us who are co-founders. Interesting. And it's funny you bring up that piece around you spent probably the better part of a year saving and planning this leap. And there's another guest that had a similar story and talked about that. And I think one of the things that we discussed was that, you know, there's a million things for you to worry about as a founder. And your own home front and personal cash flows is not the one you want to be fighting the battle front of. Totally. And so, you know, the advice was uh, totally there's moments to get paid, although you know you're going to be taking a pay sacrifice. Yeah. But if you can intentionally plan for that where you've, you know, been thoughtful, planned out a little bit of a cushion, you can't do this in all moments. It's not always totally. easy to, you know, I'm saying this. In the, if you have the perfect way to perfectly plan out your leap and you have the timeline that allows it, if you can create a little bit of a cushion and obviously discuss it on the home front and all other aspects of your life, this is not an area you want surprises no. and things will take longer than they, people most often expect. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I learned a lot from that whole experience and at least I was prepared in the sense of like worst case scenario from a cash cushion perspective but what I wasn't prepared for was the shock of just not having an income so even though there was a cushion there it's like when you're in a salary job you're used to you know maybe seeing the bank account stay flat or, or hopefully going up over time and socking away money in your savings but even if you do have a great cushion there it's a whole different feeling seeing that sum of money just go down and seeing nothing come in and like that was so incredibly stressful. So at least I had, you know, a cushion there to soften the blow of, you know, not seeing that income come on and or come in on like a biweekly basis. Yeah, I can imagine like you can only prepare for that so yeah. much mentally. And then when you're living it, it, it's a different experience. So now that first first startup, I don't know if you said the name, but I think it was called Rise. Rise Market. Yeah. Still still around. Okay. And so tell me about your transition from Rise to, to Doormat. What was the timing of that? What was the catalyst for that? Yeah, it, it did. There was multiple catalysts to it. It did have a lot to do with the financials of it from my own personal perspective. So by the time I was leaving Rise, I was still the only one that was full time. And we weren't in a position yet to be kind of paying consistent salaries out. So I think it started to weigh on me from that perspective. And then I think there was just different goals 
in terms of what I wanted to get out of my career. So going into Rise Market, I thought felt that there was a good opportunity to to raise some money and scale it quite large across the country. But it just didn't fit, didn't, didn't happen at the time. And and I was still eager to get that experience. And so I've been thinking about, you know, taking a step away from from Rise and moving on to the next thing. And that's what ultimately made me available and open to uh, the discussion with others. Yeah, now, I think we talked about this when we were catching up about the types of startups that you can get involved in and the concept of those that are, I think the term I was told in a couple podcasts ago was like the cottage, <laughs> a cottage business where, you know, you can be a very successful entrepreneur and make M's, but not B's. You can get to the the million or millions a year, maybe even a couple hundred thousand a year, more than enough for the average person to have an amazingly comfortable life. But uh, those are generally a slower rise up, you know, focused on generating a sustainable business, but not always growing at massive scale. The ones that are the scale are like sort of, they're not, not always this way, but a little bit more all or nothing. Like it's a make or break and you go for the B and you swing and you swing hard. And so it sounds like you were going through a little bit of that, which is like, hey, no offense to either option. Both are great options. And, you know, at different moments in your life, you might seek one or the other, but there's a real self-talk you have to have, which is in this present moment, am I looking for a business that could be a couple hundred thousand or millions and be a cash flow business for my life? Or am I looking for something that's going to be like massive national or international impact? And it sounds like that's for this moment in time, for you, you wanted the latter. You were looking for the bees type moment if you're going to kind of spend this time and energy that you planned for in that. Totally. I, I think for me, I, I fully wanted, I wanted to be and want to be full time on whatever business I'm running. And then also got into a position too where I, I did need to be paid at least something to, to be able to be full time on it. So I think that's a, a big consideration. You know, there's the, the M's and the B's certainly like go through your mind. But for me also, it was about like the experiences that I wanted to get in my career. And so part of that was raising money and going through that whole process. And, you know, I think. That was something that over time I started to realize was really important to me and, and wanted to, to have those kind of career experiences that came with raising money. Now, mind you, I would say I fall into the more conservative bucket of the, the bees in this scenario where I believe really strongly in, you know, sound financial metrics when you're building out a business, even if it's like a scale business or a VC business which I think is starting to line up really well with like how the current fundraising market is and, and how investors are thinking and, and, you know, not to get ahead, but I mean, related to doormat, I think that's why we, we landed to, to some open ears in the investment community so far. That's a, that's a great point on the other elements beyond the M's and the B's a little bit around what your own, you know, payment needs are a little bit around the experiences that you're looking to get if you're you're spending this you know it's commitment it's commitment of time and energy that you know is more than most people's average job i'll I'll go with averages but you know you want to get something out of that it's a learning experience through that you know any we'll we'll talk a little bit about doormat in in a second but any advice on either you know diving into your first startup and, and things you might have learned now that helped you inform your decision on your your second startup, or even just the process of of going through that. Like I'm sure you learned a lot about having really open conversation with your founders from the previous startup as well. Any advice on any of those elements that you think is useful before we jump? Yeah, into Yeah, I think I mean I think just jump into it as soon as possible is one of the like best pieces of advice that I could give. Like I didn't start anything entrepreneurial until I was in my thirties. And, you know, if I could go back and, and do things differently, I don't think I would have like started a business and gone all in right away, but I would have been maybe running businesses on the side or having some, some side, some side hustles in addition to that kind of more 
safe, cushy job that I had. Um, I actually think you over your career have done a really good job of that. Started up some businesses, uh, got experience, a broad array of experience in kind of being an entrepreneur, but then also having that big, big corporate job. So I, I think that would be my big recommendation. Everyone is like, it doesn't have to be like a quit your job and start a business type thing. It's like, in fact, I, I wouldn't recommend that. I'd say like, you should start a, start a business and run it on the side for as long as you possibly can. See if you want to do it and if you can hack it. And then if you see a, a path towards being able to sustainably run it full time, then, then make that leap. And then other recommendations beyond that in, in, time, in terms of just like getting on top of it is like, I think co-founders are everything. So across both businesses, I was fortunate to have good co-founders, but different sets of co-founders. And so I think it's, it's making sure that your goals and values align and goals in terms of what you're looking to get out of the business. So back to our M's and B's conversation. If uh, one co-founder is looking for the M's and the other co-founder is looking for the B's, that could be catastrophic, even if you guys are best friends and you get along in, in every other way possible. So that piece is really important. And then, I mean, last piece, but, but just kind of piggybacking off of the co-founder piece is it's so important to have complementary skill sets. You don't want to have co-founders where, at least this is my opinion, you don't want to have co-founders where you overlap in what you contribute. The beauty of co-founders is that you are cheap labor from a cash perspective because you're compensated based on your ownership stake. So if you're just overlapping in terms of what your contribution is, then that means you have to hire the gaps that the two of you have, where if you do a good job of covering the bases of kind of like the key skill sets that you need in the business, just financially, that, that sets you up for a lot more runway in the early days of the business. That's cool. I, I like that. The advice on the rounding out your skill sets is is key, or at least going into it eyes wide open that if you're going to have overlap, exactly, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. You might not. You might have the perfect co-founder where you know when your heads come together, you think of great things, but you will have to hire out the other totally. skill sets, which will cost totally. Money. Cool. Well, let's talk about doormat. Maybe let's you know we're on a show called Pitch, please. So we'll start with your pitch, but I'm going to want to hear about the name and, and then a, a whole bunch of questions about the business. So Joel, let's start with the pitch, your best pitch, please. <laughs> Absolutely. So when you buy or sell a home in most parts of Canada, you are required to use a real estate lawyer and that real estate lawyer helps you to close on the deal, whether you're purchasing or selling. We've built technology and built a, a client support platform that helps simplify and, big, and bring transparency to that whole property closing process, also for a much lower price uh, than you would typically get on average in the market. I like it. And so we'll break into a bunch of those things and maybe even discuss the industry because I think that's yeah, important absolutely. context for people. And, and this is one that's probably a home, like really close to, no pun intended, home for a lot of people that have either gone through a real estate transaction over the last couple of years, which I know a lot of people did, or are thinking about what that looks like in, in the future. Um, but maybe first, how, how did you guys come up with the name Doormat? <laughs> like what inspired that and and what part of that, you know, you said your your role is kind of CO, but you wear a lot of hats. Were you part of like the the brainstorm team behind Doormat as well? I was not. So the name Doormat was... Um was put together and thought of before I came into the fold. And I could certainly credit my two co-founders for being the ones that came up with that. So I know what they did is had a number of different name options that they were thinking through, did a bunch of voting with friends and family to, to figure out the one that felt the best in, in terms of fit, like in actually describing the business, uh, but also being simple. So yeah, that I was not a part of. Funnily enough, we get pushed on our name a lot of the times. There is uh, a bit of a, a dual meaning to it where you could take it to mean that it's welcoming you to your new home, or you could take the negative connotation about, you know, being walked all over like a doormat. We've actually found that conversation to be beneficial because um, so many people talk about our name uh, and, you know, they might say that they don't like it and they think that we should change it. But I would say, I would almost guarantee that those people remember the name 
and they won't forget the names. We've been pushed on it. I, I had the chat with my co-founders about it when I was brought on into the business about kind of why it was chosen. But I think as time passes, we're becoming increasingly committed to it and feel good about it. I love it. It's an interesting take, which is if people are talking about you and your startup, that's that's a good exactly. thing. And, you know, which did you mean? And you know what? It doesn't matter. It's a very simple, easy to remember name, which is which totally. is cool. Well, let's let's talk about the industry. Obviously, people have an understanding of buying and selling a home. Maybe they've gone through it themselves or know someone else that has, or if they haven't, they understand that there's some element of a transaction. But let's talk about what the industry looks like today. What traditionally do people do? Is there any innovation in this space beyond what you're doing? And then we'll talk a little bit about where and how you see yourselves as differentiators. For sure. Yeah. So traditionally and and how it operates outside of us today is these services are provided by small regional law firms for the most part up until, you know, a little bit into the, the pandemic, you were required to sign your property closing documents in person. So that necessitated the delivery of these services to be from companies that lived or or worked within the area that they're serving. So your market is mainly made up of like these law firms that might service like North Toronto or Thunder Bay or Peterborough, but it's it was almost impossible for any well, quite impossible for any law firm to service across. Uh, the province, unless they had a bunch of different satellite offices to make it work. Um, a massive change that came um, with with the pandemic was uh, remote document signing and that being allowed by the regula- uh, regulators in the space. So that actually opened the door for us to to get into this business that was typically hard to create a large market size because you had to be regionally focused. And all of a sudden it expanded the market to be all of Ontario because the way that the regulators operate is, is provincially. So that was a, a massive change, but it still persists now that the market is dominated by um, regional law firms that don't um, put their clients through any sort of technology to bring transparency to, to the experience. A lot of the time the clients are just left in the dark wondering what stage of the the property closing they're at, you know, not really sure what they're going to be paying. And then when they get the bill at the end of the day, it's it's different than what they felt they discussed at the, at the start. And just not a lot of kind of like client-focused mentality in the mix there. So I'd say in a way, the the service delivery almost became commoditized. And so there wasn't really a lot of effort to deliver a premium experience or not, it just kind of averaged out in the middle. But really that that piece about remote document signing changed the game and allowed for technology to come into, into the mix and start to improve the experience. Yeah, that's interesting. That catalyst really was important to the business offering that you've got because you could think of this all day, but you had a regulatory body that just wouldn't allow a digital approach. Now, it sounds like you're jumping on the back of a digital approach in an industry that's very fragmented and very traditional in nature in trying to trailblaze a path faster than others. You don't have to name them, but is this concept pretty unique, at least in Canada or maybe Canada versus the US? It sounds like you're operating in Ontario. I assume you intend to at least lock down Canada, but talk to us about the regional plays here and how that plays into your business. Yeah, model. for sure. So yeah, right now we are operating in Ontario and the plan is to expand across the country. Our expansion plan would just basically be based on population size, which will roughly translate to the number of, of uh, property transactions that you'll see in each province. Um, and the main reason for that is just we you have to have lawyers participating in each transaction. That's a required part of it. And then lawyers are are regulated professionally in a provincial provincially so right now we're really focused in ontario it represents kind of pretty much half of the business in canada so it makes the most sense to just get that right and then start to expand to other provinces within the country there's a lot of similarities across across the board the biggest exception would be quebec but there is still still a requirement and a business opportunity there 
We actually don't see ourselves expanding into the U.S. It's just such a different market there. And what you have in the States is you have attorney states and non-attorney states. And our whole business model is built around the requirement of a lawyer in the transaction. So stepping outside of that would just be a whole whole different world. I, I guess you can say never say never, but that's certainly not within our plans. And then when you talk about competition, there's a couple other digital players in the mix, but they do it. We all do it differently. I'd say there's like two notable digital competitors. One is run by a law firm. And so, you know, I think there's some limitations that come along with that. And then another is running their business and growing their business in a more similar way to us, but their service delivery is different. So one of the things that's incredibly important to us is to have the lawyers that serve our clients actually working for Doormat so that we're not just a middleman that kind of acquires clients and then passes those clients on to a lawyer to be servicing the deal on the back end while our technology plays the middle. We believe that technology can drastically improve the whole experience, but that's not it. There has to be, there has to be, I'd say boundaries and guidelines created in terms of that client support that we want to play a role in. So, you know, long story short, we want to own the end to end transaction. We don't want to just be a part of it. And so that is a big differentiating factor between us and, and our more digital competitors in the space. Got it. Well, maybe let's talk about that piece then. So how does Doormat actually work and where in that, in that transaction or journey are things different? Like where do you, you know, focus? It sounds like there's this element of tech meets actual lawyers that are part of the Doormat team. And it sounds like you're innovating parts of the experience, parts of the costing, parts of the transparency. But let's walk it through. So if I am, if I'm buying a house and you're selling a house, how does this work for us? Yeah. Um, so first of all, and I'll, I'll say that this is what I'll speak to is on, in Ontario. It's often quite comparable across other provinces, but I'll say that I'll, I'll specifically speak to Ontario. So if I'm buying a house from you, both of us will need to, to have legal representation. So you'll have to solicit your own lawyer. I'll have to solicit my own lawyer and we'll engage those folks and those folks will connect together on our behalf. So you and I, as the purchaser and seller, don't actually interact with each other. It's the lawyers that take over that interaction and they facilitate the, the transfer of ownership from the buyer to the seller. So historically, what would happen in that scenario is let's say that, that you're the one who's reaching out to your lawyer. You would reach out. They would do basically a, a, a KYC with you, collect all the information that they need over a phone or email or something like that, and then email or call you for additional items that they'll need over time. And that's about it. That brings you to closing day. You have no idea what's happening. A lot of the time, the asks are really last minute and vague. A lot of lawyer speak and, and legal jargon that's used. And you're kind of left feeling like, you know, this is one of the biggest transactions of my life. And I have no idea what's happening. I don't know what I just paid for. You know, I don't even feel like I have a record of anything that happened on this. Fortunately, you would get a nice closing package at the end, but that's about the only, only record that you would have. On the flip side, what we do at Doormat is as soon as you, and actually, sorry, I should say the one other piece to that is, is it is law clerks that end up doing the large majority of the work on a, on a residential real estate transaction. So in terms of the legal expertise applied, there is some. But, you know, a lawyer doesn't have to get too involved in a transaction. It is very much more of a project management exercise, which is really what opens up the door for us to get involved. Because, you know, technology, it's harder to replicate legal expertise with that. Much easier and much more possible to take project management work and bring that into a technology that can make things more efficient. So from our side, right off the bat, the clients get... Once we receive the purchase agreement, they get invited into their transaction and answer uh, a whole series of questions that are responsive based on, on each answer that they've given before. So we're able to go into pretty significant detail to collect the information that we need ahead of time. And then once they complete that onboarding and, and setup, they go directly into their dashboard 
where they get access to understanding the step-by-step process that we'll go through. And they're able to track that live as we progress through. Anything that we need from them, we surface up through the application and we explain to them why we need it, what it is, where they can get it type of thing. Any apps that we have of them is actually completed within our application and all communication flows there as well. So um, with our application, they're able to have everything completed and accessible in one central spot and they're able to track the progress that we're making on the other side to feel that confidence that the work is being done that needs to get done. And then, so sort of like I'm imagining, you know, when you order a pizza and it shows that, you know, your pizza is now being made, your pizza is now in the oven, your pizza is now ready, your pizza is now for delivery, but for the home transaction. So there's the piece that allows you to follow it along. Bang on. The simplification of all your messaging, paperwork, inputs are all in one spot, not one phone call, a text, a few emails, drop something off. So centralized and streamlined in that way. Totally. Well. Yeah. The Domino's tracker, right? It's exactly what we think about it. And, and that's how simple we want to make it. Like it doesn't have to be more complicated. You know, if, if people wanted more detail, we'd be happy to give it to them and to speak in, in the terminology that is, that is often used in the space, but really, you know, people just want to understand what's happening. They want to understand like where we're at in that process, in our process. And just have clarity on like the documents that they're seeing or why we're asking for something. And that's what we serve up through our application a lot is, you know, rather than like asking a client for their property insurance binder and just giving no context at all, uh, we tell them what a property insurance binder is. We proactively address the frequently asked questions that a client might have so that they're not left, you know, feeling stupid or questioning what what next step they need to take. So, you know, from our end, it makes our lives easier because we're not getting those questions. It's all served up quite clearly within the application. But I think we're also, especially kind of like in the, the, uh, the millennial Gen Z generations, you know, oftentimes you're seeing folks that are are working a lot, have extremely busy lives. They don't really want to be picking up the phone and calling with every question that they have. They want to self-serve. And so we allow them to self-serve and not have to feel stupid about asking a question that, that, that maybe they wouldn't want to ask. But we are fully available. So we're available via phone, email, text, or chat. We just don't have many people take too much advantage of that because everything is quite clearly explained and laid out within our app. Yeah, so it can be as hands-on or as hands-off as you exactly. want. Now, this matching of the lawyers, you said each party sort of seeks out their own representation. How does that work through doormat? Is it the same lawyer or you automatically get one side of the equation? One person's doing all buy, one person's doing all sale, and it's all done through the platform? Or how does that yeah, piece work? good question. So we actually, the whole thing is not done through the platform. So we say we're representing the buyer. Yeah. Everything from the buyer's perspective is done through doormat and they will be able to see that represented visually in their dashboard. We are interacting with the other side to facilitate, you know, the necessary activities that need to happen to, to transfer property ownership. And much of that falls outside of the application. So a big part of the, the, the lawyer's job is just coordinating with the third parties involved. So mortgage provider, real estate agent, seller's lawyer, and there's a lot of back and forth work that happens there. So another big part of our business that's not visible from the client's perspective is continue to, continuing to build out our own internal technologies that improve our efficiency in terms of how we operate. Because it is like, I mean, the the simplest way to describe what we do is a, a project management exercise with a lot of moving parts. And, you know, technology is perfect to come in and simplify that and, and make it more clear what needs to be done next. There is the client facing component of what we do, but a lot of what we're focusing our attention on is what builds we can do internally to, to make sure we're operating more efficiently which ultimately brings a lower price or a lower price to our clients. I guess what's cool here is right now you've got a B2C product. 
that theoretically could be white labeled into a B2B product as well once you've mastered it to help other lawyers if you wanted to, or you could disrupt, yeah. uh, but you could help them service their clients in a more tech forward way, streamline process. It might manage more challenges on the margin side since it sounds like you have a, a fixed pricing model. And we'll get to that in a second, but it does sound like the cool part about this is you're building tech that supports the workflows of lawyers that you can go do to disrupt the entire space. Or if you really wanted to, you could white label it and resell this even to lawyers who wish to modernize how they're approaching um, their client base. 100%. Yeah. And I mean, we've gotten pushed, like as we've talked to investors and stuff on why we wouldn't be creating a B2B product rather than a B2C product. And it really just goes back to owning that entire client experience and how important we believe that is. So, you know, we think that technology could improve the service that a lot of lawyers deliver, but it's still going to hit a cap in terms of how good that that service delivery can be. So we're not just building technology, we're building an experience and we wouldn't be able to do that with a B2B software. But, you know, you're right. It's nice to know that uh, that that option is out there. Yeah, it's cool because that optionality doesn't exist totally. in every business. Yeah. Um, and I think either way, it's like, yeah, you could go B2B, but everyone's gonna be like, no, we'll just use DocuSign. We don't really, if you disrupt, well, then if you wanted to resell it as software, you've got, you know, a first party example of why, and you've got the proof points of why without having to, you know, deal with naysayers. Let's talk about the pricing. So how, how does the pricing work? If I'm coming to, to doormat, is it based on the type of transaction, the size of the house? Is it always, always the same standard fee? How does yeah, that work? Yeah. So for us, um, we have one standard fee across the board. So we support purchases, sales, and refinances. For each one of those, our, our price is $979 plus tax, um, which is quite competitive in the space. And then there does start to become some modularity to that pricing, you know, if you've got multiple mortgages involved in a in a purchase, that does you know add add uh, some extra cost to it. But we try to keep it as simple as possible. Whether you're buying a you know a two hundred thousand dollar home or a one point five million dollar home, the price that we charge is nine seventy nine because our costs don't change in that scenario. Wow. The one the one I'd say the most variable thing in the mix is what's called disbursements. And disbursements are essentially the costs that uh, a lawyer incurs in order to facilitate the property closing. So like when you're doing title search, though there are costs that are, are encouraged in order to be able to do that. And those costs are um, put back onto the client. So you've got your fee that you know we as a business earn, and then there's just the other costs that we incur in order to do our job. What ends up happening in the space though is, is there is a lot of variability in pricing and that's one place where we really are trying to come in and, and just be ultra clear about what we're charging. And if anything does come up along the way, because it can, things may come up, we tell our clients immediately and make sure that they're well aware of it rather than waiting until the very end and, and having this tr- surprise bill. And we've found that that approach has worked incredibly well so far because people are reasonable. You know, they they know that if work, extra work has to be done or more work has to be done, that it makes sense that there's some sort of, of charge to to accommodate for that. But what they don't like is surprises at the end. And so that's where the human element comes into it. And that's where that like experience piece that we care so much about comes into play as well. Makes makes total sense. And, and I I mean, like you said, you've tried to create as much modularity to it as possible, but you can't predict everything that comes up. Maybe you will eventually, totally. and that's that's what you're building. But but for now, so you've been working on this for just over a year. Um, it sounds like you had some good traction. Where are you sort of at in, in terms of this? Like, how long has it been? You've been working on it for over a year, but that doesn't mean it's been live. So, how long has it been live for? Um, you know, what's sort of the the next frontier look like? Uh, for you. I mean, we're on the cusp of 2024. By the time this gets released, it'll be just before 2024. So you, what are your 2024 plans and what have you gotten done so far? At, at yeah. So we we launched officially in March of, of this year. So March 2023. 
And that's when we came to market with our first product, which was our ability to service purchases, purchase transactions. And then just shortly after launching, we kicked off our efforts to, to raise money. So we closed our pre-seed round in May of, of this year. And so this year being a pre-seed company, it's been basically just getting our feet wet and, and understanding what we need to build and, and what direction we need to, to take this company as we kind of gear up for our seed round. So we weren't overly focused on growth this year, but we did service a, a solid number of, of transactions throughout the year, uh, probably more than we would have expected, but we really didn't test the waters in terms of, of how we could go about acquiring clients. We really focused on, you know, taking this technology that our team built and applying it to the clients that we were serving and making sure that we actually had something that worked. Because uh, there's a lot of assumptions that are made in a product build. And then once it, it actually gets into real application, uh, it doesn't quite pan out as you expected it to. So with us raising money, we had the luxury of not just forcing growth into something that you know wasn't going to work. And I think fortunately, like we, we built something that works and, you know, there was pretty strong reception to it right away, but we definitely had to make tweaks throughout the year and, and we've changed our approach in, in a lot of ways. And so this year has really been about just kind of like honing the product, honing our service delivery, really figuring out what our values are as a company and making sure that we're ready for the next step into growth. And so that's what we're about to do heading into 2024. So we've got our, our foundational product built right now, and that's both like a client-facing product and a internal-facing product that powers that client-facing view. And we feel really good about that and have some uh, a really solid roadmap built out of, of where we want to take it. And then 2024 is, is about growth. So we're expecting, you know, we, we think we'll see ourselves doing another raise in 2025. And so to, um, to get to a place where we feel good about our position for that raise. We need to be focusing on growth uh, next year. And, and that's where we'll be, you know, placing a lot of our time and attention. And of course, always product. You're always, always building a product to service that growth and, and make sure that we're delivering an amazing client experience. I like how you kind of walked through this element where like your product's really important at first. So you've got to get some people using it, but it doesn't have to be fully baked. Use that time to get it to a more perfect state. And then instead of just like, and I think this is brilliant. Some people just focus on just like a feature fiesta yeah. and they just like add features and features and features. But to your point, like you need to almost like break it a little bit first. And so at some point you got to be like, okay, Features can keep coming, but maybe on a slower path, we need to equally invest in acquisition and growth. And I think you said it earlier in the show, there's a real need to go focus on sustainable revenue growth and financial capability now more than ever, especially if you're going to go look to raise funding. You can't just talk product features, aspirational email signups. Like you got to show that impact. So it's cool to see that you're like deliberately making the pivot into that of you've serviced customers, you've built product, you've refined product. Now you're going to go make some bigger waves on individuals to create that revenue flywheel to, to then go unlock the next wave of growth, which will get you more features, more devs, exactly. but you need to go demonstrate. And it. you, you know, you don't want to like, we're not setting out for like 20 X growth, right? Like we're, we're setting out for much more reasonable measured growth that will allow us to continue to deliver an incredible experience that people are going to speak, you know, fondly of as they tell their friends and family versus maybe going like absolutely ham on growth. And maybe we do hit that, that 20 times mark, but we break everything along the way, piss off a ton of people and don't position ourselves well for, for continued growth in the future. So like, you know, if you said, would you rather 20 times growth next year or five times? I'd probably say five times for that very reason, because like we care deeply about the experience that we're delivering and the product that we're building. And 20 times growth doesn't match up with that. We're not all about growth. We're about kind of like that sustainable build and responsibly building this company. I like that. And I like the awareness around what you want to go do and deliberateness of it, not just numbers for the totally. sake of it. Now, along this journey, what's sort of been like the hardest 
uh, thing or most challenging thing. And maybe it's doormat. Maybe it's your own pivots from like RBC, you know, through a startup into another startup, maybe still being in startups. Like what's sort of like a, a challenge or an interesting moment that sort of stood out for you for the last few years here in your entrepreneurship journey? I'd say a, a big one for me was deciding to go from Rise to Doormat, you know, it'll by a lot of measures it felt that like my time with rise was really successful but from a personal finances measure it wasn't and and that's just for my own my own personal kind of like income throughout the time so deciding to take the leap into another brand new startup was incredibly difficult and then like going back to the start of our conversation about like what were the conversations you need to have before like making the leap Initially, like I had to have a lot of conversations with my wife, you know, making the leap from one startup to another. So I think that 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 was like incredibly difficult. I'm fortunate to have like a lot of support from from my wife in that. And then also my co-founders that I was going into this with with Doormat were very open to kind of talking it all through and, and open to like any concerns that I was bringing to the table. So I would say that, you know, personally that was so difficult but i'm glad that i did it because a lot of the lessons i learned from the first the first business i've been able to apply here and and maybe you know take a more even keel approach than what i was doing before and then just tactically in doormat i mean jumping into a space that i personally have no experience in has been really difficult so and not just you know jumping into a space that i don't have experience in but one that's highly regulated has been super challenging, but that's also been part of the reason why something like Doormat doesn't already exist. It's not an easy space to break into. So there was a lot of upfront work to be able to actually run this business legitimately and in line with the expectations of regulators. So it was a lot of hard work before we even got to launch, but well worth it because, you know, again, it's it's not easy for other folks to get into and, and now we're into it and, and we feel like we can really run with it. Let's talk about the worth it. What's sort of been the, you know, highlight so far of this journey? And it can be doormat and the breaking through and the the well worth it in there, or maybe your well worth it was making that leap when you did into your first startup rise from RBC and you know challenging yourself to learn and grow in this way. But what's sort of like the highlight for you? Yes, yeah. I mean, jumping. Uh, it's crazy to think back on like my own personal experience so far with this and like going from the day where I left RBC to jump into the entrepreneurial world like full time to where I'm at right now. I'm just a completely different person in terms of like what I can bring to the table. And I think one of the things that is tough and no matter what job you do or what company you work at is you naturally get labeled with that. And so it's easy to get labeled as like a bank person working at a bank. And so it feels good to me to, you know, be doing pretty well working for uh, a company that, I, that I'm a, one of the founders of. So I think that's been incredibly rewarding. And then like, you know, that just makes each great thing that happens with Doormat that much more rewarding. So, you know, not that raising money is the ultimate goal, but it was a really nice feeling when we were able to close that first round just after everything that I had personally been through. And then each win that we have as a company is like, it just presents that moment to to reflect back on on the journey to even even get here. And I think that's so important in entrepreneurship is like you have to celebrate each little thing because the highs are high, but the lows are extremely low. Um, and so you can't get bogged down with those. Yeah. That's good advice. And I think as you demonstrated there, it's about savoring those learning moments because you can either apply them to the next startup. You can apply them if you go back to work at a big company, but they're these like actual tangible skills that I think you highlighted that you're building along the way and you need to be aware of them. Otherwise it's just like you, you blow past it all and you don't really appreciate everything you've done until you are totally. done, which sometimes it's too late. So in the moment, uh, enjoying and reflecting on those things. Now, if people want to find out more about Doormat, um, we'll link everything in the description, but where should they go? And the other question I really like to ask, because sometimes it's connected to this, is 
Is there anything in the next while ahead? It could be the next three months, six months, 12 months that if there's someone listening, they could be anyone. Maybe it's like just the everyday person. Maybe it's someone that could form an introduction, but is there anything specifically you and the doormat team are looking for help on other than, Hey, if you're interested to use us, we'll get to that and where they can go. But is there anything else you would add to that? For people that are listening in that could maybe help lean in and support your journey and your growth. For sure. I mean, so the best place to go for any further information is doormat.ca. We try to make everything cleanly available and, and simple via our website. And then in terms of the ask of like beyond folks choosing us when they're buying or selling a property is, is anyone who, anyone else who is in the real estate space or prop tech space, whether you're a real estate agent, a mortgage broker or a prop tech company that plays in that home buyer's journey, we'd be really interested in talking. So, you know, there's certainly an organic acquisition angle for us to get clients, but a big part of our business is, is already through partnerships with folks like real estate agents and mortgage brokers. And we're going to continue to build out those partnerships into the new year. So anyone in that space that would be interested in, in learning more about Doormat can definitely reach out to me directly. I would love to chat with them. Sounds good. And we'll make sure to link all that. Again, if you're looking to help, obviously anybody that can collaborate, I love that you're looking at this like collaboration in the real estate prop tech space. There's so many people doing so many cool things. And if you just try to do it alone, it's not quite as as savory at the end. And there's going to be you know, unknown collaborations along the way. So I love that, that, that shout out alongside anybody looking to obviously buy or sell property and, and you know, there's a lot of value in this for them. It's it's a fully digital experience. It's backed by and supported by lawyers as a component of the transaction. It's extreme transparency. It feels like the ultimate win for people with busy lives that just want to make real estate a lot simpler. And it sounds like you guys are doing amazing work and at its core is backed around how you're doing it compliantly with lawyers built totally. in. So I love it. Joel, thanks for, for joining us on the Pitch Please podcast today. Any closing words on your side before we wrap up today? That's it. That's all. I appreciate the time, Mike, and appreciate everyone that uh, took the time to listen. I love it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in again to the Pitch Please podcast. Catch you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Pitch Please podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. <laughs> Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.